Hi, David Hurley here. Thank you for listening to the Hurley Burley and our continuing weekly coverage of Election 43. This is panel number two with our regulars Jenny Byrne and Scott Reed and a special guest today, Eric Grenier. Eric is the founder of the widely read 308.com and he's currently senior writer for the CBC's Parliamentary Bureau and its analyst of polls. He's written for the Globe and Mail, Huffington Post Canada, The Hill Times and many other fine publications. Eric also has a superb podcast, the CBC Election Pollcast. So please give that a listen. We're going to get to Eric a little bit later, but first, Jenny and Scott and I are going to start to talk. You'll remember that Jenny is a longtime strategist and campaign manager for the Conservative Party of Canada, helping to lead them to victories in several elections. She was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's co-deputy chief of staff and was also a huge role in electing Doug Ford to the premiership. Jenny hails from Fenelon Falls, Ontario, and I'm guessing she's seen more weird shit go down at the Trent Severn Lock 34 than she feels comfortable (laughs) talking about. Scott Reed is my good friend, former senior advisor and director of communications to Prime Minister Paul Martin, and once had President George W. Bush crushing hard on him. Google George Bush loves Scott Reed for all the romancy details. Scott's a leading political analyst, appears on CTV News, writes in a number of locations, and is today joining us from a remote, unsecure location. All right, let's dive in and start. Um, There's a little bit of buzz around all the spending announcements that the government has been doing in the last couple of weeks. Uh, This is not a new phenomenon. Quite regularly, governments leading up to election campaigns go on these kinds of spending sprees where they they, uh, make announcements all over the place in writings and involve their MPs and candidates in those announcements. It's a great idea. Always gives the government a great boost. Right, Jenny? Yeah, listen, this is not something that's, that's new. What is new leading into this election? is the scope. This is unprecedented. This government has made over $30 billion in spending announcements uh, since the pre-rip period, their defined pre-rip period of of April, although I think that the ba- vast majority has just been this summer. So I think that uh, the, 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 the sheer volume is not in the scope as to what either of our parties have done uh, up until this point. And I think then the Liberals during the campaign are going to have to answer how they're going to, to uh, pay for all these spending promises. I presume they're all in the fiscal framework. They're all budgeted. They just weren't announced. Well, no, if, if you look, Bill Curry in the Globe and Mail had, a, uh, had an article a week and a half ago that spending, uh, government spending has increased by well over 10% in the last fiscal year. So I'm not sure this actually has been accounted for. And, and if it has been, the Liberals are going to have to have to explain where, where, where it is. Right. Is it good politics, Scott? Probably. Um, I think it works on a couple of different levels. Um, I, I won't quarrel with Jenny's characterization of it as being um, disproportionate to any scale we've seen before. I don't know that to be a fact, but I'm going to assume it's a fact because it just seems big. It seems constant. Um, and, you know, I've always been curious. I'll, I'll put it that way. I, I, I've been unconvinced in the past that this kind of splurge before a campaign necessarily helps. Um and I'm not sure that it helps in the way that people think um, in that I don't think, oh, well, because this group got that money and that community got that check. Um, therefore, um, people will be more inclined to be supportive. But I do think it's a way to generate constant profile. Um, and I think we've seen the government very effectively, particularly in Ontario and B.C., I would say, uh, holding down a lot of real estate over the last uh, month and a half because of these announcements. They just generate coverage. They generate presence. And so I think it's probably had some lingering positive effect on that. So, yeah, I think it might be good politics. The other thing, I, I and I 
completely disagree with Jenny here. Like, if the Conservatives want to get into how much the Liberals are spending, it's a legitimate debate. I don't think it's a helpful debate uh, for the Conservatives because I just don't think there's a lot of votes in a discussion of um, deficit reduction, uh, deficit management right now. Um, I, it's a worthy public policy discussion, but I'm not certain that... Um, that's what I want the election to be about if I'm Andrew Scheer. And I'm positive uh, the Liberals would be thrilled to have that debate because they'll win that thing 70-30. But we're not solely talking about deficit reduction. There will be a greater deficit. But so at some point, conceivably, the Liberals are going to have to start paying down this. So are they going to raise taxes? Uh, are they going to cut programs? The, it, I think it's a completely legitimate debate uh, leading into the election. Canadians need to know how all of these these goodies are going to be paid for. Yeah, I mean, I just don't... Yeah, but see, I, you, just, you just took us into deficit territory. And you just took us into a... Let me put it this way. You definitely took us into a discussion and debate about fiscal policy. And I just don't think fiscal policy is going to be terribly helpful to the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, I think probably better than better than deficit uh, is is the sort of sloppy spending, which also can undermine your fiscal credentials, even if your deficit numbers are good. Um, and so, I just don't particularly think it's good politics. I never really have, Scott. You know, we did a fair bit of this in two thousand five, leading up to that election, and I don't know if it was of the scale of this or not, but it was more than I liked. Because, I mean, we know, we know, I think, first of all, it makes people cynical. It's immediately seen in an electoral context, in a political context. So it's not judged as though you were actually care about that thing that you're announcing. It just feels like to people like you're doing it because there's an election. So it just, it comes through cynically. And second of all, we know what people vote on. We know that they vote on the leader. We know that they vote on the party brand. We know that they vote on core issues that are critically important to them. And where the funding from the federal government for that local bridge enters into that decision is very, very low, in my opinion. So I don't think it's very well, useful. Political. Well, and to your point, if there is a local announcement that actually is something that, that it galvanizes people, I think of, you know, there are certain announcements in Atlantic Canada. I know that leading into the 2011, Eleven election, uh, dredging the Sydney Harbor was a big issue. If you're the opposition party uh, or the opposition candidate, you're just going to say, "Yeah, I agree with them." And uh, if I win, I'm going to dredge your harbor as as well. Right. Okay. So debates. There is a debate uh, this week um, on Thursday night. I think it is <laughs> unlikely the writ will be called by then. By the sounds of it, the, the media. I was, I was, uh, I was in studio yesterday, and the media, uh, the media at, at CTV were telling me that it was going to be tomorrow. Okay. So I, I don't know. Right. They were, they were also telling me it was going to be last Sunday. Well, in any event, this debate's going ahead, and uh, Trudeau is not going. Uh, what do the other party leaders hope to achieve from this guy? Not much, in my opinion. Um, I mean, it's an opportunity, I suppose, to get some coverage and it's an opportunity to get yours in on Trudeau and to say, here's the empty chair, here's the prime minister who refuses to debate us. But ultimately, there's going to be debates. Uh, they've been you know, done through the commission. I just don't really think you get a lot of pop out of this. I think it's the kind of thing that people like us talk a lot about, but I don't think it's going to actually translate to votes. I think Trudeau took the position last election, Jenny, that he wouldn't do any debate that Prime Minister Harper didn't show up to. Yes. Yeah, that seemed like a reasonable and smart position for him to take. It was it was reasonable, and uh, there were five debates last election. Uh, the only consortium debate, of course, was the TVA, the the second uh, uh, French debate. 
Um, I think that's uh, I think that was very reasonable, and and I can understand exactly the strategy as to what the liberals are doing in terms of uh, limiting the number of debates. They are a mammoth, uh, uh, as as you know, a such a a mammoth drain on the resources. Uh, debate days are when uh, the vast majority of uh, of senior people are holed away uh, with a leader who does not want to to be there, being criticized, and uh, it just it really takes a day away in, in prep. And so I think whether the election is called or not, you're going to have uh, Trudeau out doing campaign style events. You're going to have him out meeting people, uh, getting media coverage, and you're going to have the other three leaders uh, preparing for a debate, which frankly, not many people are going to watch. I'll, I'm going to have to force myself to probably get through it. So you think, Jenny, that there's no hit to Trudeau from not doing this debate? No, I don't. I don't. In, in, listen, in, in 1980, uh, Pierre the Elder uh, didn't, uh, didn't do one debate and he came back and won won a majority. I, I do not believe that anyone wins wins an election based on a debate. I think the downside is people can lose it, but the vast majority of the time, it's just a, a net neutral. So why did Stephen Harper do five? Well, we did, it was a different structure. So it was away from the consortium debate. So as the proposals were coming in, McLean's, the Monk debate, um, uh, it, it, it just became from a, uh, it just became from a, uh, point of view, we didn't. It, it felt necessary to to do them. Do do I think that probably it was the best use of our time? Looking back at it, no. But we were also in a seventy eight day campaign. It was a lot different than this than the you know a thirty six day or a forty day if we go Wednesday. I will say the debate prep is maybe my very favorite thing about campaigns. I love debate prep day. Oh, I love taking Sunday afternoon, even though it's supposed to be your down day. You're off the road. I love it. You know you. All get together in one room. You get to yell nasty questions to the prime minister. People get to play other people at podiums and mock debate. I love debate prep. It's a blast. You know, Paul never hated you as much as he did on debate prep days, right? Yes, I know. There yeah. are videotapes somewhere of him cursing in extraordinary uh, terms. <laughs> well, I can honestly say there's 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 one thing I never did uh, in the you know six national campaigns that I I did even my and even in my two times as the national campaign manager, I stayed as far away from debate prep as possible. I happily held the fort in the war room. Right. Well, that's good for your relationship with the leader. I think. <laughs> um, so before we <clears throat> before we reconvene here, we are going to have um, uh, the election will have been formally called, and I know that the I know that the parties, some of the opposition parties, say that they've already started their campaigns, but that doesn't really matter. The starting day is the starting day when the prime minister goes to the governor general. Um, from your perspective, you two, how how important is that opening statement by the leaders in terms of? Uh, in terms of how the campaign ultimately goes for them? I, I think it's important, uh, less so for, you know, media consumption. I think that it's uh, important for candidates, volunteers. I think it sets a, a tone for uh, where the campaign uh, is going. It's one of the few days that uh, people will actually be paying attention. They'll pay attention for the first couple of days and then kind of uh, I, yeah. you know, forget about it. So I think it's very important to just set the right tone and tenor, but I, I don't think that campaigns should overthink it. It ultimately is, you know, you, you make your statement, you get out of Ottawa, you get it, you get into where, uh, you, you, you want to win seats, keep seats and, and you're off to the races. I mean, as somebody that believes that elections are generally won by big, uh, sort of, um, overarching, 
issues or overarching dynamics to the campaign, not a bunch of little campaigns. I have always thought that these opening statements were incredibly important as a way to frame what you think this election is about and to try to create the framework under which people see the rest of the campaign that way. Scott, you worked on a couple of these. What do you think? Well, I agree with that. I agree with what you just said. You look at it as an opportunity to frame the debate, to try to say, this is what I'm going to say this thing is all about and how and why you should cast your ballot. Um, and I think it's uniquely important in this election because I, one of the things I've been puzzled about is I don't think any of the parties, including the Prime Minister and the government, have done a particularly clear job, a particularly good job of defining what they want the ballot question to be. Um, and I know that there's a slogan of choose forward and, you know, we understand what the thematic is and uh, so forth. And I think we all think that affordability is um, the driving force behind this campaign or any campaign that's going to be run right now. But I don't think anybody's really articulated that in a way that's stuck and that's been sharp. And so I think, you know, the opening statements and when people launch could be quite important in this campaign and maybe particularly important for the prime minister uh, to hear him articulate that. How much is it is his appeal on day one going to be about what I've done versus how much is it going to be about what I intend to do and all those kinds of things. Um, well, I mean, the elections got to be about the, elections are all about the future, right, Scott? If they were about what you'd done in the past, Winston Churchill would not have lost in 1945. Um, so, well, I agree with that, but I think it's a mistake that campaigns, particularly incumbents, tend to make over and over and over again. I've done this, and therefore that means you can count on me to do this other thing. And I think they often misread that play. So, I mean, I think you're right about the prime minister in the sense that I, I really am looking forward to him looking people in the eyes and convincingly getting back onto the middle-class economic message track uh, that he was on in 2015. I think, as you do, that they've got some good proof points, mostly from the first year of their mandate, some good proof points uh, to demonstrate that what they might do in the future on that. But I don't think that that message has been coming through in the last couple of years from the government, and I think that that is the winning ticket for them to get back on. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree. I think that uh, we could see, uh, uh, you know, whatever the ballot question, and, and, and Scott touched on it, uh, it, it seems to be affordability for all the parties, uh, and I don't think that any of them have, have, to Scott's point, defined exactly what that is. So I think that uh, although they may all think in their own minds and in their own campaigns what the question is, uh, they are going to have to actually, they're going to have to modify their narrative uh, if they're going to be able to uh, to reach out to to Canadians on affordability or it's going to turn into, into something else. Um, uh, it's hard in a five-week campaign. Um, I, you know, it can happen in a longer campaign, but at the end of the day, uh, I agree that um, I don't think there is any defined ballot question right now. So, Jenny... And you know, can I can yeah. I can I have one thing yeah, picking yeah, up on yeah, something yeah. Jenny said? Yeah, yeah. Just something Jenny said earlier about debate, and I wonder if it may apply to this topic also, because Jenny said that she didn't think that people necessarily won campaigns from a debate, but that they could blow a campaign during a debate. And you wouldn't normally attach that same notion to launch day opening statements, but if you think back to 2015 and Mulcair's opener, I thought it was a fucking terrain wreck and uh, you know it set the tone Whoa. and i really did like i thought like it 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 sent every signal of high i've already decided i'm the front runner i'm gonna play with the lead 
you know, we're in the fourth quarter, even though it's the first quarter, and I've got a seven-point uh, gain. I just thought it, it stank. It set the tone for the campaign. And so applying that logic, which is actually Jenny's logic, I think, again, you know, what, what does Singh do on day one? You know, uh, that's going to be kind of fun to watch. Well, um, I remember back in 1993 when Audrey McLaughlin opened up in front of a dinosaur fossil, which was not exactly the image that the NDP needed on. <laughs> on How could that have happened? How could that have happened, man? Um, just yeah, one last yeah. one last thing on these opening statements, Jenny. Um, in 2005, Stephen Harper, in his opening statement, took same-sex marriage, tried to take it off the table mm-hmm. as an issue by addressing it, not running from it, by clearly addressing yes. it. Does Sheer need to do any of that on social issues? Well, I think he tried to do that uh, in the press conference, but I don't think that that uh, that it probably uh, that that it worked. I um, I'm not sure whether it will it will it will work. He's uh, at the time in 2005. You know, it was it was it was actually a, an issue that people were were talking about. Now, um, I think that uh, it's it's become an issue, but it's it's not really an issue top of top of mind. So um, I I don't I think that it's going to continue to haunt Andrew if he doesn't if he doesn't uh, address it. But I'm not sure he's in the same position as what the prime minister was in 2005 when he you know he addressed it. We know that you guys were going to uh, to come after us uh, or to try to make it an issue. Uh, he uh, he proactively brought it up. Uh, I was much more junior in that election, but my understanding is he brought it up on his own. It was not something that was discussed. Uh, 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 broadly with the campaign team, but he brought it up. It got covered uh, for a couple days, and we went on to talk about our our top five priorities. Um, so, so you didn't know he was going to say that. I didn't know. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I did not know that because that felt like it was a very orchestrated, deliberate strategy. One which, in retrospect, I think was uh, quite smart and worked like a damn. It, it, like it, it, worked, it really worked. It worked. It worked perfectly. There was a plan. I'm just saying it wasn't, it wasn't a plan that was fully formulated by, uh, by the, uh, by the campaign team. And if it was, it was much higher up, uh, up my pay, pay, pay grade. Scott, does Sheer need to, does Sheer need to deal with this social conservative business? And if so, does he deal with it in his opening statement? Yes and no. Yes, he does have to deal with this issue. I thought his press conference a couple of weeks ago was ineffective, incomplete. He's going to have to be stronger on it. But no, I don't think he should do that on day one. And I don't think so because Harper in 2005, Sheer does not have the luxury that Harper had in 2005 when Harper was strong enough to make that his day one issue, to take it off the table. Um, you know, Harper had come through the previous campaign. I think a lot of people were looking at him saying, but for this lingering set of concerns, uh, it's a fair prospect to make him prime minister. I think Sheer has more to prove, and as a consequence, he's not strong enough to lead with his weakness. I think he's going to have to address the weakness, but I wouldn't lead with it. And so if he doesn't address it, um, the Liberals are going to be tempted to continue to push these issues in the writ. Um, And should they? You know, whether they should or not, it doesn't matter. They're going to. And uh, uh, the reason they're going to is because 
uh, the conservatives were caught so flat-footed in the in the la- in the uh, uh, in the handling of it. it. It was it was somewhat of a self-inflicted wound. If you look at it, it was the uh, it was the announcement of Sylvie Frechette, uh, the conservative candidate in Riviere du Nord. She's a uh, you know a former Olympian Olympian gold medal synchronized swimming, and she was asked uh, a media question about abortion, and of course did the answer um, saying that you know no one would be permitted within a conservative caucus of bringing up these issues. Question went to the leader's office. Leader's office said, that's news to me or that's news to us. And then it basically just spiraled into seven or eight more days before the press conference. So whether it's right or not, um, if I'm the liberals, you're absolutely going to continue to throw this at at the conservatives during the election. Why wouldn't you? Right. And particularly on the abortion issue, I mean, the, the data that I'm looking at says that the conservatives are getting absolutely clobbered among women by the liberals. Winning among men, but getting absolutely clobbered among liberals. And this issue is, for most women in the country, um, a deal breaker. Um, And so I think he does need to say something to women to reassure them about this matter. Yeah, listen. And I think it may be a slightly different discussion. Sorry. No, No, go ahead, Scott. It may be a slightly different discussion than it was 10 years ago. You know, when Harper had to address it in the way he did, which essentially was to say, um... I'll have obligations as prime minister to not open this issue up again, and I guarantee I won't. And I, it may be that that position is no longer tolerable. It may be that for a lot of women voters, the uh, orthodoxy on this has moved to a place where it's just not going to be acceptable for a, a, a chunk of voters to hear somebody <laughs> who wants to be prime minister say, I'm this fundamentally offside with something that's this fundamentally important to you. So it, it may be um, it, it, it may be an issue that, if that's his personal perspective, might be almost unhandleable. Eric, welcome to the panel. Eric, as everybody knows, is the host of the CBC election pollcast um, and is the premier poll aggregator in the country. And therefore, we wanted to have Eric on the podcast here to talk to us about what the consensus of the polls is about what the state of this race is. So, Eric, maybe can you talk us through that consensus, both on a national basis and regionally? Well, I think on a national basis, the consensus right now is is more or less a neck and neck race between the conservatives and the liberals. Uh, right now, in our uh, in our averages, we have the two more or less deadlocked, just a couple tenths of a percentage point separating the two parties, and we're starting to see that in poll after poll. Or there'll be a poll that comes out, either has a tie, has a one point lead, or a three point lead, back and forth like that. And I think that's really where we stand. Uh, and so that's where things are between the two major parties. Then for the other parties. Um, you know, there's less consensus right now on where the NDP is, because we've seen some polls now, a couple of them putting the NDP in single digits. Uh, we've seen some other polls putting them in the mid-teens, uh, which is a bit more where they traditionally be. And, and so it's a little bit harder to know just uh, where things are for the NDP. But overall, you're looking somewhere in the low teens. And when you're looking at some of the regional numbers, it suggests that they're really in a lot of trouble, because it's not that they have any... Uh, concentration of support anywhere. They're more or less uh, 20% or lower in every part of the country. Um, and then finally, the Greens, they seem to have made a, a lot of gains uh, during the year, but that's they might have more or less hit their ceiling somewhere on 11% support, uh, which, of course, if they get that, that would be their best ever. And then uh, Max and Bernie, the People's Party, somewhere around 3%. Does anybody have momentum? <sighs> I'd say that the 
in a way, the liberals have a little bit of momentum in the sense because uh, over the summer they've picked up some support. Um, and whenever we do see a poll that is showing one party that is making gains, it does tend to be the liberals. It doesn't look like they have a, you know some galloping momentum or anything like that, but that's probably to be expected since we're we're not really starting in the campaign just yet. But if anybody does, it would probably be them. And the NDP seems to have a negative momentum. They seem to be dropping, and the the polls are starting to look worse and worse for them rather than looking better or that they're holding their support. Yeah, when I so looked at your tracking, that's probably there's probably a relationship between. When those I looked two at things. your tracking, they were in most regions in the most recent numbers were at the lowest point they'd been at. Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough for them. And when you're looking at some of the, uh, you know, how that'll translate into seats, I mean, when they're down to somewhere around 10% in Quebec, they're trailing in the lot of polls, the Greens. You know, when uh, Thomas Mulcair was uh, uh, the only one that was elected in the 2008 election, they had 12% support across the province. So they're below that. Uh, it's looking rough there. It's looking rough in BC because, you know, their stronghold would have maybe been on Vancouver Island. Now the Greens are pushing them there. Um, and we're seeing a lot of these, uh, you know, polls that are done either in ridings or clusters of ridings. We saw some really interesting numbers from uh, Innovative Research uh, just this week, really showing trouble for the NDP that, they're, that you know, the first-past-the-post system could be really, really penalizing to them if their numbers don't get better. Okay, so let's go regionally. Let's get to BC. Let's start with BC. It's very interesting to me. And by the way, Jenny and Scott, jump in if you've got questions for Eric or the comments. Um, BC is very interesting to me because last election, the Liberal Party won more seats there than it has ever won in its history and more seats there than, frankly, I would have believed was possible. It was a remarkable breakthrough um, there, and it was a big part of the majority. Um, are they poised to hold those seats, Eric? I think they're in a pretty good position to hold a lot of them because right now the two parties are more or less neck and neck, somewhere around the low 30% uh, mark. And uh, I think that because the NDP has dropped, they're now somewhere around 18 and they're now vying for the Greens for that third spot in the province, um, that the Liberals might be able to pick up some of the NDP seats that are more in the, in the Vancouver area to make up for some losses maybe in the, um, in the, the suburbs around Van, uh, outside of Vancouver and in the interior where they, had, they won a couple seats that was surprising. Uh, and then on Vancouver Island, uh, you know, the Greens are in a good spot. They're polling somewhere around 16%. Uh, some polls have had them higher up in, than that. And uh, for the NDP, it's, it's really just seeing what they can survive with. What's going to be interesting about B.C., and I mean, we say this every time and it doesn't actually happen, but, you know, maybe we'll have to wait and see what people do in B.C. before we know if it's a majority, a minority. And for the NDP, we might have to wait until we get to B.C. to find out if they get 12 seats. And that's going to make a long night for them. Again, things could change and we'll see. But right now, uh, that, it doesn't look like it'll be fun right. for them right now. Okay, so, um, Jenny... Uh, raised in our last podcast, Eric, the fact that Abacus did a poll and segmented out Alberta and Saskatchewan. And uh, when they did when they did that, you almost had two different uh, Canada's and two different election races going on inside Alberta and Saskatchewan and outside of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And by the way, most polls continue to lump Saskatchewan together with uh, Manitoba. I think Saskatchewan's political culture has much more in common with Alberta now than it does with Manitoba and probably belongs lumped in there. But anyway, what do you think is happening in those in those three prairie provinces? Um and because one of the things I can never get from the um, from the individual polls is what's happening in Winnipeg, which is a pretty important area for the Liberal Party. 
Yeah, and uh, it's probably tough to, to get a good beat on it right now because of the uh, the uh, provincial election, right? So any of the polls that have been done in Manitoba might have some cross-pollination across it. But yeah, I think you're right. Alberta and Saskatchewan, the numbers that we've seen from Saskatchewan when there have been some breakouts more or less look like Alberta numbers. And I, I think those two provinces are more or less going to be the same in that it's really going to come down to just a handful of seats in the cities that whether the, the Liberals or the NDP are, are going to be able to hold them. In Alberta... You know, it's really just whether the Liberals can elect anybody. Uh, and that they doesn't probably look like but, but they're sitting at 20% if you look at, at some of the polls there. So that would indicate that they might hang, hang on to one Edmonton seat. Yeah, and I think that's probably the more or less the floor. It would be, I think I'd be kind of surprised if they dropped down to zero. Uh, but Randy brought Boston in Edmonton Center. That was like a three-way race last time. So it's the kind of seat that Liberals would probably be able to hold when you look at the the huge numbers Rachel Notley put up in a riding like that. But then it's just the other seats. If the Liberals can hold on to the uh, the other three that they had won in the last election, and what's going to happen in Strathcona, because uh, Linda Duncan's not running again, does that split between the Liberals and the NDP and the Conservatives win? Anyway, so uh, Alberta is really just about, you know, for the Conservatives, they need to max out Alberta. They can't afford to leave three seats on the table in a, in a place like Alberta, right? Uh, and the same thing in Saskatchewan for the NDP seat in Regina. That's uh, Aaron Weir. That's going to be hard. Saskatoon West, again, hard. Ralph Goodell, I assume, can survive anything. So uh, he's probably, probably okay. David, I'm, not, I'm knocking on wood here, Eric. I'm knocking David, on wood. David, you should give your stat. Ralph Goodell got <laughs> half of all the votes cast for the Liberal Party in Saskatchewan in 2011. Can you believe that, Eric? Yeah, well, I, if if you were able to survive 2011, it's hard to imagine you can you, you would not survive 2019, right? Um, so yeah, there'll be you know the seat in northern Saskatchewan will be interesting. Uh, that could be another three-way race. But then yeah, you're right, Manitoba. Uh, it's really about all coming down to Winnipeg and whether the Conservatives can take back those suburban seats that they lost to the Liberals the last time. The polls that we have seen in Win- in Manitoba by uh, Probe Research, which does some polling just in Manitoba, suggests that the Conservatives are in a pretty good spot to pick up some seats. It'll be a question whether they can max that out and pick up five seats, or if they only pick up two or three uh, in the suburbs. Okay. Eric, it's Scott. I've got a, a general question for you um, about aggregation, which I have to confess is something I don't fully understand. You've got a bunch of different polls using a bunch of different methodologies individually. I'm not going to like, you know, single out anybody. I don't want to cause a kerfuffle, but you know, sometimes I'll pick up an individual poll. I roll my eyes and I'll say, this is probably bullshit. I don't really trust these guys. How does the aggregate, like does just the fact that you've aggregated everything together, does that just wash out that outlier effect? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's the, the point of it, right? Um, Because when you have some of those polls that have, uh, you know, one of the parties really high compared to everybody else. You you tend to also have polls that'll have a party that's really low. Uh, so I think it does even it out, and I think it especially can do well at the regional levels because if you look at the last election, uh, the regional aggregation does actually a lot better than even the national one because I think that's where you start to really get to even out some of the margin of error effects and that kind of stuff. But I think also because you never know in what in a, in, a, in an election whether it's going to be one that is. Um, going to be better for one way of doing polling than another, you know, and I think if it's a low turnout election, some poll polling methodologies will work out better. If it's a high turnout one, others will work out better. Uh, so it, it does, in a way, kind of allow you to, you know, uh, make up for some methodologies' weaknesses with the strengths of others. Um, but certainly, you know, 
it, it is as good as the the stuff that's put into it. Um, and uh, and during when we get into an actual campaign, and there's going to be even more polling than we're seeing now, I think it even evens it out even more. Whereas now, you know, when you have one poll that comes out every couple of days, it, the actual poll that comes out can have a big impact on how the the average is looking. So. Um this flows right into Ontario because there's a huge divergence in the polls in what is going on in Ontario. Is Ontario a close race or is Ontario a liberal beating? Um, what do you think is going on in Ontario? I think it's it's uh, closer to a liberal advantage. I wouldn't say, you know, some of the polls that we've seen with a t- you know double-digit lead, I don't know if that's really what we're looking at right now. Uh, I think in general we're maybe looking at something more like a, a five-point lead for the Liberals. Uh, some polls have been putting the gap at you know a tie, and some have been putting it, like I said, a huge margin, right? So you got to fall more or less in the middle. And I think that probably lines up as well with the kind of uh, provincial-level polling you're seeing where the PCs are still holding on to some of their support, but it's not that they're you know, uh, tanking down into the low 20s or something like that. So, yeah, I think Ontario is really, really a problem for the Conservatives because they're not really doing as well as they could be doing, and they're doing worse than they did in the last election. And even at the height of the SNC-Lavalin affair, when things are going very badly for the Liberals, the Conservatives were still not getting over 40% in Ontario. They were still being dragged down by, presumably, the unpopularity of the the PC government. So for the Liberals, it's really about um, holding on to a lot of the seats that they won, you know, that they can try to sweep Toronto again, and some of the polling that we've seen in terms of how the NDP is doing suggests that they're going to have not too much trouble holding downtown. It's really just a question of, of the, uh, you know, the inner suburbs, I guess, of, of Toronto. But then it's the, the whole GTA, not really sure how that's going to play out right now. And that'll swing based on how things are going in the camping as a whole, right? It's not uh, people in Mississauga aren't exactly tied to their local MP in a way that they might be out in Cape Breton. Um, but, um, yeah, for the NDP in, you know, in the southwest, they're missing a couple incumbents. And even some of their incumbents look like they might be in rough shape. Uh, so if the Liberals can pick up some of the NDP seats, it might come out in the wash if they lose a couple seats in the GTA. So uh, it'll really just come down to whether we'll see these numbers move at all. Because right now the Liberals, if they're going into a campaign like this with a, a bit of a lead in Ontario, I think that's probably exactly where they'd like to be at the outset of this campaign. Well, no kidding. But, I mean, does your seat projection model tell you, give you any hint of where do the Conservatives need to get to in Ontario? to have a chance to form a government? I think that they need to be at least somewhere north of uh, 60 in order to form a government because uh, they do have a good chance to make some gains in Quebec. When you think about 2011, they didn't need Quebec. They had five seats there, and they didn't even need those. Uh, but now they need Quebec, but they can probably, if things are going well enough for them, they can get 15, 20 seats in Quebec. Uh, so that means they don't need as many in Ontario. But if they're still not getting to half the halfway point, in Ontario, because they're not going to win most seats in Atlantic Canada, not going to win most seats in Quebec, and they're just kind of wasting some number, some votes out out in the West. Um, that's really the challenge for them that they need to get probably to the halfway mark in Ontario. And to do that, uh, you know, you need to be winning those those suburbs, those small uh, cities. And uh, with the kind of numbers we're seeing, it's more about holding and uh, picking up a couple of the seats in the GTA where the Liberal vote might be coming down enough that a Conservative moves ahead, even if they're not picking up a lot of new votes. Quebec, is there any chance that Justin Trudeau executes a Pierre Trudeau-type sweep of that province? Probably not. I don't think he's looking at anywhere like 70 seats. There was a point during the 
not too long ago, but at the beginning of the year, at uh, the end of 2018, where the gap the Liberals had in Quebec was so wide that just because of the division of the vote, they could have reasonable hopes of winning 65, 70 seats in Quebec. So it didn't matter what was going to happen in Ontario if they managed to pull that off. Uh, but now we're, they've dropped down to more or less where they were in the last election, somewhere around 35%. But the advantage now is that the next party is further back than the NDP was in 2015, and it's the Conservatives, and their vote is so concentrated that it amplifies the Liberal lead even more. Uh, so the Liberals are in a good spot to pick up 10 seats in Quebec, maybe more than that. Uh, for the Conservatives, they're doing pretty well, and you know their vote is now over 20%, and uh, will be able to, well, probably be able to pick up some seats. they got some good candidates running, and then for the Bloc Québécois, you know, they have more. A lot of people are talking about the resurgence of the Bloc, and certainly they have their act together more than they did in the past. But they've got just as much support as they did in 2015. It's just going to maybe produce more seats because in a lot of the seats where the Bloc came second, the NDP was first, and the NDP's vote is cut in more than half. Right? They've dropped from about 25 to around 10 percent in Quebec. So a lot of those seats uh, that were won with 33 percent of the vote, 30 percent of the vote. Uh, by the NDP, uh, the, the bloc can now win them with 33%. So is this, a, uh, so is this just, election another step in the bloc's it, demise, or is this a step in a bloc resurgence? I think it's a step in the continuing survival of the bloc. Uh, I think I think it's reasonable to think that they're in a good spot to pick up official party status. They're not unless things change dramatically. I don't think they're getting you know north of, of 20 seats, but um, official party status at least would would give them a little bit of life, and if they manage to elect their leader, it would be the first time they've had a leader in the House in, in almost 10 years. Scott? If Bernier picks up any ground, like w- w- one point, two point, three points, who do, whose column does that come out of first in Quebec? Does it come out of the bloc first, or does it come out of the Conservatives first? That's actually a really good question. I'm not sure. I don't know if the vote, the that vote in Quebec is, is different than in the rest of the country. It's, it's really hard to say, because they're only up you know, two to three percent in in a lot of these polls, and that's so small. It's hard to know who it's coming from, right? It does seem right. like it's be primarily the conservatives, but um, you know, the kind of of uh, person that Bernier is chasing is maybe somebody who just doesn't vote that often. Uh, so it, they might be the kind of person who's just was turned off by politics to begin with, and didn't trust any of them. To, uh, so now we'll come out. Uh, out of the woodwork, but I would think it's mostly the Conservatives. I think the biggest effect, though, for Maxim Bernier, Quebec City, that's definitely conservative vote. He's getting a lot of support from, from the talk radio in Quebec City. That'll give him a bit more of a boost. But the fact that the Conservatives have to spend resources in Beauce, which is actually, before this, one of the safest conservative ridings, not only in Quebec, but in the country, uh, you know, the other parties are happy that that's money that's not being spent elsewhere. Right. Atlanta, Canada, last election, um, was the bellwether that the night was going to be very, very good for the Liberals um, and won every seat in the region, um, including some crushing losses for the New Democrats um, in that region. Um, I don't expect the Liberals are going to win every seat in the region, Eric, but they look like they're still strong, right? Yeah, they still have a lead in the polls. Some are, have about 10-point lead over the Conservatives. I mean, last time, though, they had nearly a 40-point lead, so that's not as good as it was in uh, 2015. Yeah, when I saw some of those seats in southern New Brunswick go to the Liberals, then, yeah, that was pretty clear that we were going off to a majority uh, for that party. So 
Um, yeah, I think New Brunswick's probably the biggest challenge for them. A lot of those seats uh, in the Anglophone parts are, are pretty good pickups for the Conservatives. The Greens going to have a big impact, could have you know some vote division there. Um, the Francophone parts of, of New Brunswick probably going to stick with, with the Liberals. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think the most concern for the Liberals would be in Brunswick and Nova Scotia because they're missing nearly half of their incumbents in that province. And, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that seats that they won with 70% of the vote or so uh, could flip over. But, you know, they're missing Bryson, they're missing Cousiner uh, uh, and Iking in Cape Breton. And there's serious, you know, speculation that those are seats that could... Uh, that could flip over, along with some of the more, you know, the rural seats that the Conservatives it's used all Scott to hold fault. in Nova Scotia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think a lot of the blame could be But, but, if, but for, for most of the seats, I agree with you in New Brunswick. I think if 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 we, if the Conservatives win uh, three seats in Atlantic Canada, it's going to be the three southwest New Brunswick seats, Fundy Royal, uh, New Brunswick Southwest, and Tobique Mactaquac. But in terms of Nova Scotia, I know I speak to people uh, uh, in the East Coast. I've spent a lot of time there. But if you Look, and they're very bullish on some of the Nova Scotia seats, but any of the polls I'm looking at still have have the Liberals over over 50 percent of the vote. And I understand that local candidates in Atlantic Canada, um, you know, mean a little bit more than to your point of what they would in you know Mississauga or Markham or what have you. But still, you know, a local candidate attributes you know five percent of the vote max, and that's if you know they're a superstar. Like that's if you've got like Wayne Gretzky running. So. Um, you know, is is that like is that not what what you're seeing in terms of like outside of New Brunswick, the polls still remain very high for the Liberals? Uh, it it depends a bit on the poll. We've seen some um, from the the old CRA, uh, the now called Narrative. They they've have still a good advantage for the Liberals in uh, in most of Atlantic Canada. But there's some other polling that was done by MQO in the region that suggested it was a bit more problematic. And Stephen McNeil's not that popular, and you know, whereas Doug Ford might be hurting the Conservatives in Ontario, Stephen McNeil might be hurting a little bit in uh, Nova Scotia. Um, now, you know, you guys would know this more than me, of course, knowing how the impact of candidates. But uh, one of the things that I've always been struck by whenever I've been doing projections for seats is that you know, in in uh, the GTA in Vancouver, the value of incumbent is really very low. In Atlantic Canada, though, you can have swings of double digits in a riding just because of the name of the person that's there. You know, when you're seeing in Newfoundland and Labrador, you'll have a seat that a party had 5% of the vote, and then in the next election, the provincial election, that party's now up to 60 because of the person that they put there. So um, so it wouldn't shock me if, if we saw some dramatic swings. And the PCs uh, have lost a couple MLAs in Cape Breton that are running for the uh, Conservatives, so I think that gives them a bit more, uh, a bit more of a credibility there than if they were just, you know, no-name conservatives that are running against an, uh, a, a no-name Elf, liberal. Elsie McLeod and but, Eddie Earl, uh, very yeah. popular guys on on, uh, on the island of Cape Breton. <laughs> Excellent. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and talk to us. All right, my pleasure. Great. And uh, listeners, remember the CBC election pollcast. Thanks, Eric. Okay, so that was really useful and interesting. But Jenny and Scott, one thing that we know for sure is that every election these days has a major uh, swing in opinion that was unanticipated. Sometimes it goes back to where it was before that swing. Sometimes it doesn't. So even if we end up where, at the end of the day, where Eric says we are right now, it's not going to be in a straight line. So uh, there'll be some volatility here yet, and there'll be some changes. I think the most interesting thing out of all of it for me 
is the implications for the Conservative Party. Is if you believe, as I do, that they need to win a majority government for Andrew Scheer to become the Prime Minister, then they're going to, based on this data, have to take some real chances in order to get there. Um, I don't think it's reasonable for them to sit back and say Trudeau will run a bad campaign or Trudeau will implode. I think they've got to go out. If they want a majority, they've got to go out and win it, and that will take an unusual campaign. Yeah, listen, it's it's uh, the the numbers here. It's it's uh, it doesn't really put anyone in a majority category, um, uh, and and it kind of comes down to what we were talking about the the seat. Um, the the different projections, and that's where you know uh, the the conservatives are disproportionately high in in what we would say the prairies, mostly Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, just the same as the NDP were uh, disproportionately high in uh, Quebec for the most part of the uh, of the last election. So it made it seem that it was you know closer than 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 it was. So I agree. I think the uh, the conservatives are going to have to uh, uh, make some bold uh, make some uh, you know, bold moves uh, in this campaign, and and you know, uh, you know, Eric touched on it, but for example, the People's Party, depending on uh, on where they who they take from, uh, they they could be spoilers in this election. So you know, in the do you lower- think he'll be? Do you think he'll be a good campaigner? Um, I think he will work. I think Max will work hard. Um, I think that he does have a, a following. I've, I've, you know, you see on on Twitter and social media, he's getting crowds out. If you look at by elections, there was one in BC um, uh, a few months ago, uh, six months ago, where he got ten percent of the vote in York Simcoe in Peter Van Loan's old seat. He got three percent of the vote. Three percent of the vote in Ontario seats for the Conservatives. If that's who he's taking votes from, that can be a spoiler. That right. can so I think there's these factors that even though people are are polling lo- or could be polling low, campaigns matter and they could it could it could actually make a difference at the at the end of the day on October twenty first. Right, Scott Reed, what do you think that roundhouse punch is that the conservatives need to land? I don't know. I would hate to. I'm I'm not sure. I agree with your point of departure. I'm not sure that they um, do have a roundhouse punch in their pocket. I think. There's almost no path to a majority victory for the Conservatives that doesn't include a significant face plant by Trudeau. Like, I, I think it's in order to get that much altitude, I think that they must have Trudeau perform poorly and make a mistake of some significance that the electorate cares about. So, so I don't know that it's a, a long play. To me, I, I think this also presents some challenges for Trudeau, though. You know, that the, you're saying that the Conservatives have to make a big play. But just where do I put the prime minister if I'm running the liberal campaign? It's challenging because he's got real estate to address everywhere. You, you think in the 905 a lot, try to firm that thing up and keep what appears to be maybe a good thing going. You've got to be in BC because it's the biggest question mark on the map. Can't afford to not be in Quebec. Oh, and by the way, as we've just heard, Atlantic Canada is a little mysterious, so we better spend some time there. Like it, if you believe that where you are matters, and I think it still does in campaigns, I think taking the leader to a place matters, um, particularly maybe in a place like uh, BC. You get on the other side of the mountain, it's a different political culture. Um, I, you know, they've got some choices to make in terms of physical presence and campaigning. Yeah, I I um I, I agree. It's uh it's almost uh even more challenging having uh having uh the you know to be on the uh on the defensive 
um, uh, you know, with 180 some 80 some seats. But I, I agree with uh, I agree with Scott. I think that it is a challenge running a campaign to make sure that you know you spend the the you know you're in Ontario once a week, you're in BC once a week, you're in Quebec once a week. Uh, it can be a very challenging. Uh, thing to move to move people along. I know in talking about the polls and and uh, um, one of the things that I always did, even when I was running national campaigns, is I always ended up door knocking in different regions. Last election, uh, I I spent a couple days in BC. Uh, I I came down here to the GTA um, and spent uh, spent some time door knocking. And I can tell you that. Uh, Candidates on the ground, campaigners on the ground, they are ahead of where the public polls are. And in every campaign that I have been part of, uh, either through feedback of candidates, uh, feedback from MPs, uh, my own experience, uh, we knew where I knew where those elections were going prior to the public poll. So I was door knocking in BC in uh, uh, in August of last year, and that was when we were still leading in the polls. And I can tell you, it did not. I was in an incumbent held riding. Uh, one of the best polls that we we had from the 2011 and 2008 campaigns, and I can tell you, it did not feel like a friendly poll. Right, right. So and that's when you knew it, it's vulnerable. That's and that's when I knew. That's when I suspected, and I knew when I came down to uh, to the 905 and and did two or three days. Uh, that's when I knew that uh, that uh, we were in some serious trouble. I just I want to. I want to draw a big exclamation mark, though. Just go back one step, because Hurley, you devious bastard, you slipped something in there that we've got to dedicate, (laughs) I think, at least half of one of these weeks to, where you just said, as a matter of fact, in passing, oh, Sheer needs to actually win a majority in order to ever take the chair as prime minister. That's a big deal. That contemplates an interesting scenario. So we're not going to necessarily bite into it right. today, but we got to bite into that in a big way. Okay, I hear you. We got to move into where you know what we've taken up a lot of time, and we're probably testing our listeners' patience. We got to move into our lightning fast McLaughlin group round. Keep your answers pithy to this. <laughs> right? What day is the writ dropped, Jenny? Uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Scott. Tomorrow. Wrong. Sunday. <laughs> <clears throat> last night we last night we had an example of the weirdness of Twitter and how war rooms have lost control of their message because everybody with a Twitter account is a war room now. And there was this response by liberal activists on Twitter to the notion that Andrew Scheer had had a uh, an up uh, an, a modest upbringing, a middle class upbringing, and they started this hashtag called uh, Scheer So Poor That. And conservatives responded. Anyway, it was all nonsense. Does any of this matter? Does Twitter matter? Scott Reed. Not really. But can you imagine if there had been Twitter in 2006? I would have been blasted to the moon. <laughs> and, and you already were blasted to the moon and there was no Twitter. <laughs> no kidding. It would have been nothing but war. <laughs> would, would have been happening daily. Right. Um, all this noise, Jenny, if you're on Twitter, it can become obsessive and you can think it's the end of the world. But as our friend said, there's no chance in the world his parents know that this discussion is going on. No, listen, I, I think that Twitter is interesting to get. I get news from it and, and, and what have you. I think that the hashtag itself doesn't matter, but I think what matters is the, um, the attitude that, that this, that the Liberal Party has to, that it speaks to an elitist ap- attitude because this was not, um, activist. 
These these were members of parliament. These were liberal caucus members who were uh, making fun of the upbringing of uh, of Andrew Scheer, which was completely unacceptable. If I was the liberal war room, I'd be on the phone calling candidates now and telling them to shut the fuck up. Right. But it is going to be hard to control these things. Yeah. Because I, I don't think well, that... Well, you know, I want to ask Jenny as a, as a campaign manager, as an on-the-ground, um, you know, sort of uh, manager, don't you... Don't you say to your candidates right now, if you're an actual, get the hell off Twitter, Yes. okay? Like, I do not want to see you in a Twitter battle with somebody. Knock on goddamn door. Uh, no, listen, I can tell you in 2011, and I'm not going to say who it was, in 2011, there was a sitting caucus member who I'd had so much, I'd had enough of hearing about what they were tweeting. I had their staff member change the passcode to the Twitter so they could not get in. And they... <laughs> <laughs> and and they were not allowed to get it back until after the election. <laughs> and this person could conceivably have gone into cabinet. They didn't, but they conceivably could have. <laughs> okay, last one in this last one in this lightning round. Scott, Scott, Scott. Hi. Does Andrew Shear need to distance himself from Doug Ford? No. I think if he does, I, I think he needs to be distant from Doug Ford. I think that if he tries to distance himself from Doug Ford, he just gets twisted in knots, alienates part of his base, doesn't really earn a lot of uh, upside with non-conservative uh, voters. So keep your distance. Don't proclaim your distance. No, he doesn't. Uh, uh, our activists, our uh, our volunteers, our our uh, our ground people—they're uh, pretty much the uh, the same people. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, fifteen short months ago, uh, Doug won seventy six seats in uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh, all of the seats that that uh, Doug has won, um, Andrew uh, Andrew should be happy to uh, 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 for those. Yeah, but Doug won't win them today. Doug wouldn't win them today, and he's an anchor uh, around the uh, around the uh, the leg of of Andrew Scheer. I mean, if you see the Conservatives declining in Ontario over the last number of months, I mean, it can't be anything that Scheer has done particularly. Um, and Ford is toxic um, among um, women, particularly, and also looks to be in real trouble in the nine hundred five. Maybe he doesn't need to like overtly distance himself from him, but he surely needs to show people that he's a different kind of person. Well, I think that uh, uh, all federal leaders expect uh, premiers to stay out of uh, election campaigns, just like um, uh, during provincial campaigns, uh, uh, ones would expect uh, federal leaders to stay out of it. So I, I think that uh, you know you're always going to have uh, you're always going to have uh, provincial politics that that may affect. Look in 2004. I know that as the Ontario desk, we we enjoyed uh, hearing at the doors about McGinty's uh, health premium, the health tax. Right. Uh, so it it's it it, it it's always going to end up being issues whether provincial parties whether federal parties want it or not or vice versa so much don't you think that doug ford is going to barrel into this campaign like the guy from kool-aid at some point <laughs> like it's just gonna happen i'm thinking more i think i'm thinking more of the state puff marshmallow man at the end of ghostbusters but anyway um this was so much fun thank you very much uh jenny and scott thank and you uh, look we'll, forward to next week yeah we'll be back next week thank you everybody for listening 
Thanks for listening, everybody. I am going to have so much fun over the course of this campaign talking with Jenny and Scott every week, and I hope that you are both having fun and learning something from it as well. As always, if you have an opinion about the podcast, please fight your way through iTunes to give it a rating and a review, uh, or talk about it on social media. We're trying to get as many people to listen to this as possible, and you can help. So thanks very much. I don't want to redo that because I like it so much, but I do need to say... Give Eric Grenier's podcast, the CBC Election Pollcast, a listen for updates on what's going on in the polls across the country. Wow.